Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful we can gather this week for a day of thanks for all that you have provided in our lives and done in our lives. And we pray that as we look at this marvelous text this morning, you would give us new ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive, so that you be glorified in us as your people. For in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. One of the most precious facets of my relationship with Rick Calvert, uh, since I've known Rick since he was three years old, was that we have memories of each other that, that we never knew about one another or about our families. And I discovered a favorite memory of his was my dad, where my dad was standing with his World War II surplus army boots, a pair of jeans and a t-shirt, standing on the sidewalk of my front yard, watching 20 boys play football in his yard, ruining his grass. He didn't, and Ricky goes, you know, he didn't intervene. He didn't go into coach. He just stood there smoking a pipe as if he was enjoying an NFL game. We knew he would intervene if someone got hurt. Gene, I loved your dad. And I said, I love him too. <laughs> it was just a warm memory. He goes, don't you remember that? I go, no, but I should, shouldn't I? You see, remembering is an important part of the Christian life. That we remember not only what Christ has done for us, but the whole counsel of the Word of God and the stories, the marvelous stories of God working in His people. And I can think of no other great story than looking at Deuteronomy 8 today to see how we can be a thankful people as we approach not only Thanksgiving, but today our Commitment Sunday so that God would be glorified in our midst recognizing God's provision in our lives. And that's what this text teaches us. The number one thing, right off the bat, is that we are to remember God's provision in the wilderness. Notice, verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert. Now that doesn't mean God just happened to meet them in the wilderness. He led them into the wilderness. Why? He said, led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments. The Lord your God took you in the wilderness, and it was his plan to humble you, to test you. And in all those difficulties, all the hungers, all the thirsts, all the wilderness, God met you there. And that's what God does in the wilderness throughout the scripture. We know this to be true. Jacob had two great encounters with God. The stairway to heaven and the wrestling with God in the wilderness. Moses had two big encounters with God in the wilderness. The burning bush and on Mount Sinai. Hagar meets God in the desert. Elijah meets God in the wilderness. Israel is taken in the wilderness to Mount Sinai where they're given the law and they become the people of God. John the Baptist begins his ministry. He goes out to preach 
in the wilderness to minister. You had to go to the wilderness to hear his preaching. Throughout the history of God's people, that is where you can encounter God in the wilderness. The wilderness is something that could destroy us. Yet without the wilderness, we would never meet God nor never know God. So what does that mean for us? Well, the, some practical things, first of all, on a common sense level, that means we're not called to live charmed lives. You know, in American culture, we do everything we can to help our kids live charmed lives, right? We don't want them to get hurt, so we put them in bubble wrap, all right? And we keep them safe. Well, you know what happens when a kid's surrounded with bubble wrap, right? They don't know their own heart. They become shallow. They don't have any grit. So what is it that turns anyone in the scripture or in real life into a person of great value and worth? It's the wilderness. It's not genetics. It's not the intelligence. It's going through that wilderness experience because you don't ripen unless you're bruised a little bit. There's no greatness that grows unless there's some trouble in your life. And we know that to be true here at Christ Church because some of you have come into Christ Church because you hit a wilderness experience, you came in, you heard the good news of Christ, and you stayed while we were in the wilderness. And you're still here. I found God in the wilderness is a common experience. Secondly, we re recognize that the children of Israel, they were delivered from slavery, and yet God delivered them into the wilderness. And it's extremely practical why he did this, and this is a paradigm for each and every one of us as we walk with the Lord. The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God emancipated them. He freed them legally from slavery. And they got to the edge of the promised land, and he said, enter in. And they said, no, let's go back to Egypt. We were at least fed there and taken care of in slavery. In other words, they were legally freed from slavery, but they actually had a lot of trouble with the responsibility of being free. In other words, God took them out of slavery, but the slavery hadn't been taken out of them. So he threw them back into slavery for 40 years so that they would be humbled and tested and learn what was in their heart, was the text said. So how does this relate to us? Well, perhaps some of you were raised by incredibly critical parents, alienating, hostile, you never could please them. You know what that's like. Okay, what happens in a person that's raised like that? Well, you need to prove yourself. Very often you overwork. Or you're oversensitive to criticism, devastated by it. Or you're afraid of commitment. But then such a person like that, for example, hears the good news of Jesus Christ. And there they hear the good news that, there is, that they are given sheer grace by the love of God in Christ. And they hear in receiving that grace and trusting in Christ, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. 
And that's the affirmation that you're looking for. That's, you don't have to prove yourself. You're accepted by sheer grace. And God comes into your life and you're no longer a slave and you have new status. You're now a child of God. Do your problems go away? Of course not. You say, I'm a Christian now. Pleasing God is what really matters, but that's only a little part of the living on the rock of Christ Jesus, but half of your life is still on the sand of all that criticism you grew up under. And over time, all of a sudden, something happens that's really important to you is taken away, and you discover that part of my life isn't on the rock of Christ Jesus. It's on the sandy soil of my former life. And what happens when a person does that, they're shocked by it. When they realize much of their joy was tied up in that, whatever it might be. It's their self-regard is not really based on Jesus Christ. It's based on their performance in this area. But then they realize how much God does love them. And what they do is they start to pray a little more. You know what happens when you get in trouble. Something's not going right. What do you do? You pray a little more. You read the Bible a little more. You come to church a little more. You, you serve a little more. You're more generous. You, you start to do the things, right? But all of a sudden, you're receiving love through the word, through prayer, through people. So you're giving love. You're giving ministry. And you do it because you're in the wilderness and you're drawing strength and love and life out of those things in degrees you never were before. And that area of your life, which was on the sand, now comes to the rock. And over a lifetime, you discover because of what Jesus Christ has done, your identity is on him, not on those things. You see, joy in Christ is sort of like a thermostat. The colder it gets outside... The more the heat kicks on, the hotter your hope is. You go back and you pray. You read the Bible as before and you talk to people and you love people. And you find yourself growing in him. And finding more and more of your life is being transferred to the rock of Christ Jesus. Because when God created a world, he didn't create a garden, a desert, he created a garden. He didn't make the world a desert. It's sin and evil that made the world a desert. And someday in the future, God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Just wait a couple weeks. We're going to talk about that in Advent. And we're told in Isaiah 35 that the deserts will bloom. But until that time, God will use the deserts to make you bloom. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's now in Christ so we repent, and we believe, and we walk. And here's where you come down to the final question. There are plenty of people who go through the wilderness experiences, and they don't come out blooming, right? They come out more wilted than before. If it's true that we can die in the wilderness, but we also need to be in the wilderness in order to get formed into bloom, what's the secret of the wilderness? How do we make sure that we can use the wilderness experience so that we don't waste our sorrows and we can bloom in them? Well, that's when we look to verse 5 and we recognize we have hope in the wilderness. 
is number two. Hope in the wilderness. Verse five. It starts with, know then in your heart. God through Moses. Deuteronomy is just a series of mosaic sermons. That's what he's doing. He's recounting all that the Lord has done in his people before the Pentateuch, the, the first part of the Bible, is closed. And so, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Whenever in the book of Deuteronomy and in Exodus and actually in many other places in the Bible, this idea of God sending you or Jesus or me or Israel in the wilderness, sonship comes up. Being a child of God comes up. In Deuteronomy, we read in the desert that the Lord, your God, carried you as a father carries his son all the way until you reach this place. The wilderness, according to the Bible, is a place where we finally see God as our Father. And here's what this means, because you keep reading down, he humbled you, testing you to know. Testing you. We don't like tests. You know, we had the ACTs, the SATs, you high school students are preparing for that right now, right? We had the GREs, the LSATs, the pre-med tests. Why? We don't like them. We got to take them because it weeds out the unqualified. But you know, when a good father and a mother looks and sees the weakness in their children, their heart reaches out to them. They want to support them when they're struggling. If you've got a kid who's doing really well and a kid's not doing so well, your heart is really towards that, that kid who's not doing so well, right? You're giving a little more time, a little more nurture, a little more care, a little more concern, a little more support. They need it. This other kid goes, well, why don't you do that for me? You don't need it. Right? This is what God does. This word test is a broad word. It means putting some difficulties in the path, setting the bar higher, making people jump through hoops, perhaps withdrawing certain privileges, in some cases punishing, but it's never tit for tat. It's never retributive. It's not about avenging or revenging. No. God is bringing this into our lives. Weirdly enough, tests out in the world are a requirement sometimes for love. You get a certain Great on a test, then the parent loves you. You did well on your ACTs, now you get to go to Miami of Ohio. Whoopie-doo. Now we love you. No. And especially as those of us who are parents, if we, if we have set our children and one of them is weak, our love is intensified for that child. And the Bible is saying we have to know this is how God's love is intensified for us when we're in the wilderness. You have to know that in your heart. To know that to the depths of your being, that no matter what your difficulties, your suffering, your pain, your trials, you have to know that God's love for you is real, absolutely real, 
when all kinds of things you were relying on, you can rely on this hope. You have to know this, to know that your father is in the midst of this. And if you know that, you can rely on that and you can draw on that. And when the wilderness comes, you can bloom. And you might say, ah, Gene, that's just great. How do I know that? You know, the problem is, I understand he's my father, but I don't feel like he's my father. Well, maybe, maybe that's because you've been relating to Jesus, you've been relating to God as an example, as a standard to achieve. Here's how you can know. When Jesus comes down and is baptized, the dove comes down and they hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Where does the father send Jesus? The wilderness. Where? He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's tempted by the devil. You see, there's no contradiction in the Christian life, brothers and sisters. I love you. Go into the wilderness. <laughs> when we're told in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are and yet without sin, here's what I want you to see. Have you ever been betrayed? So is he. Have you, are you lonely? So is he. Have you been made fun of, mocked, jeered for your faith? So is he. Are you penniless? Your 401k keeps dwindling? So is he. Are you facing the failure of your body and maybe even the death of your body? So is he. And you say, okay, well, Jesus was tested, but I'm not Jesus. Well, because you're saying that because he's only an example to you. And if you see him suffering in the wilderness as an example, that's actually not a comfort. He's just a standard that you'll never live up to. But when you see Jesus in the wilderness for you, on your behalf, you're going to understand that the fatherly love of God and your sorrows are going to make you bloom and that he's here for you. For it was on the cross, he wore a crown of thorns. And he said, I thirst. And that thirst was not just physical. That thirst was a thirst of abandonment. It was the ultimate barren wilderness where he said, my God, my God, you are forsaking me. You're not holding me right now. He was getting what we deserve, paying our penalty, and that's the solution for us. To know that, to remember that. He was getting what we deserve. So I don't know what the reason is for those awful things in your life, but I know what the reason isn't. I know that it isn't that he does not love you. He does love you. All we need to do is look at the cross and recognize that over and over and over again. It can't be that he doesn't love you. It can't be that he doesn't care because on the cross he went to the barren wilderness for you. That's how we know 
of his love. And secondly, the cross is not only uh, how we can trust God in the wilderness, it's also a way that we can trust ourselves. Because how many of us have been in wilderness experiences and wondered, God, what did I do wrong? You know, I didn't read the Bible enough. I didn't pray enough. I didn't witness enough. I didn't do this. Just, just name your litany of things you didn't do as a Christian. I don't love you enough. We can never love God enough. No, you're his child. No matter what, this is not a punishment for your sins. Punishment fell onto Jesus. It might be a wake-up call. It might be a correction, but it is his fatherly love. And when Jesus was tempted by the devil, what passage did he quote? Verse 3. And if I had to rename this sermon, I would rename it, not by bread alone. Verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger. And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We survive on the word, the scripture. He told his disciples right after he rose from the dead, everything in the Bible is about me. Every prophet, every priest, every king, every hero, every story is pointing to what Jesus Christ did. And Jesus says, I went to the cross into the howling wilderness so you could know when you go into the wilderness that God is with you and he will never abandon you, ever. When you go into the wilderness, plunge yourself into that story, Okay? Plunge yourself into this love of Christ, into Christ's love, into the knowledge of what Christ has done, and you will bloom. Therefore, because of that wilderness experience, we need the wilderness. We can't survive in the wilderness, but we need it. But there's hope even within that wilderness. We're grateful people because he's preserved us in the wilderness, both as individuals and as a community. Amen? He's preserved us. He's kept us. We're a grateful people, and therefore we sac- live sacrificial lives in our family relationships, in our church family relationships, in our ministries, as well as our financial giving. And because we remember this, we are generous people. I would have us remember that when we were thrown out of our former building, literally the day before we got there, I got a phone call from Bay Presbyterian asking, how can we help? We walk into the Bay schools thinking this school system is never going to let us. They hate us. They said, what can we do for you? Keith, the custodian at Bay Middle School, set up our chairs for us. 250 chairs every weekend. No other Anglican church that got thrown out of their building had that. We did. And they set up the chairs in the library too for our 8 o'clock service. Amazing. God's provision. A few years later, we get this hint that Anchor Church wants to sell. We said, we're kind of sick of hauling 
crates. Can you just let us worship at the other end of your building? They said, sure. <laughs> so for six years, we worshiped on our end. They worshiped on their end. They came to us saying, we're sorry. We can't sell you our building. We're in no position to do that. Here's your $85,000 back. God provided. And all along those 11 years, we were looking for buildings. We really were. You know, we kept looking. We would pray together as a vestry. Me and my senior wardens and, and junior wardens, and we'd go look at properties. Some were awful. Some were, wow, this, this might work. I had the door slammed in our face. Until this. And look what the Lord has provided for us. Oh, we've had some ups and downs, and we have some challenges ahead. That inspector didn't quite get our HVA system correct, did he? <laughs> and there's more work to be done. Didn't get the roof quite exactly right either. We've had some unexpected expenses, like any homeowner, I'm, I'm sure. And we have some challenges ahead. I'm sure we're going to have some families get transferred. We've had some dear saints go home to the Lord. Some people will retire and move away. And unfortunately, Ahern Catering is going out of business, and we're going to lose that income coming up. It's easy to start to wring our hands and say, oh, Lord, what are we going to do? But God says, remember. Remember how I have provided for you. As an individual, I've humbled you, I've tested you, and I've tested you, Christ Church West Shore family, so that God's glory may shine through us in the future. And therefore, we give, remembering all that the Lord has done of our ministry as well as our finances. The wilderness is expected and needed. God gives us hope in the wilderness. Therefore, we're a grateful people. Just thinking about this as we come and we consider our pledges for 2024. Uh, obviously, the Old Testament standard was the tithe of the gross income. It was mandated for God's people. In the New Testament, it's expected, but not required necessarily. For there are some who cannot possibly give a tenth of their income. But there's others who giving a tenth isn't even breaking a sweat. And I spoke to Horizon Stewardship this morning out of Dallas, Texas, which is an advisor for churches in their stewardship campaigns and what have you. He's always trying to get me to a stewardship campaign. I say, no, we got this. Because God has always done it through our people. But he did say it's realistic with the average income in Avon Lake being $95,000 with 80 giving units. Our budget realistically could be $760,000. If that's our budget, we're fine. Even though we have some challenges ahead of us. And so I ask us to consider. So I'm going to ask the ushers to go back to the back and pick up the pledge cards for 2024. Dave, Bob, if you guys could come up. And, and so you're going to be given a pledge card as a family. And here in a few minutes, I'm going to ask Julian to play for us here in a second, like we always do. And the symbolic harvest basket is there for us. And I'm going to have the ushers, after a time of 
thinking about it. I've asked you to pray for a couple weeks about what your pledge for 2024 will be. And we know that God will provide for us through his people because he always has and he always will. So please consider this. Take some time. This is the beginning of our stewardship campaign. And so please consider making a pledge and the ushers are going to release us just like we do a communion to come up, put your pledge for 2024 in the basket and peel off just like we do return to your seats as a family and see what the Lord has done in our lives as we go forward as God's people. And so we have pens, we got uh, stewardship cards. Julian, if you would just begin to play, and we're just going to let the Holy Spirit minister to us, and then let us make our pledges so we can start 2024 strong.